Well, as we turn to God's word this morning, uh, I wonder, what did it mean for you to hit rock bottom? What did that look like in your life? And I think we all have, we all have ups and downs in our lives, but I think we also all have a time when, when we're forced through, through ugly circumstances, through repeated failure in fighting against our own sin, to really come face to face with, with the absolute darkness in our own hearts. Really see the, the evil that's there to feel our, our helplessness, our inability against our own corruption. And that's a horrible place to be. Um, I, I have a couple of instances in my life that come to mind. Um, when, ones that I, I wish I could erase, not just from my memory, but from reality. Moments that... The, the, the veil is torn back, and, and to my horror, verses like the heart is deceptive above all else and desperately sick. Like no one is righteous, no, not one. All have turned away. Together they've become worthless. Um, all of a sudden become more than just words on a page and theological statements. They, they become the terrifying reality of what I see in myself. It's a uniquely helpless feeling a personal weight and burden. We're, we're forced to see our own slavery to sin. The things that we hate most, the things that we would say are most wrong with this world living in us. How do you escape that? How do you win that battle when we're forced to say, I have seen the enemy and, and it's me? It's a horrible, claustrophobic place to be, trapped, hemmed in, helpless, against this enemy of sin that, that ruled us. And of course, it isn't just in us, is it? It's all around us. It's the world that we live in. It, it wreaks havoc and pain and suffering and destruction everywhere we go. And it's a feeling, I think, very similar to what Israel would have felt. Their backs up against the Red Sea, the hordes of Egyptian army coming over the horizon at them, representing this life of slavery and death surrounding them, coming to reclaim them. As we walk through Exodus 13 and 14 this morning, uh, I hope you'll see that the parallels there run deeper than that and, and I think are very intentional. And through it all, the Lord is once again putting on, on grand display, this is who I am. The great crossing of the Red Sea um, is this climactic moment in the, the history of Israel, their, their victory and coming out of slavery. But it's also a promise for hope in, in their darkest hour and, and translates to a promise of hope for us. Let's turn to God's Word. I invite you to open your Bibles to uh, Exodus chapter 13. Um, we're going to look at chapter 13, verse 17, all the way through to the end of uh, chapter 14. Um, if you don't have a Bible on you, um, go ahead and slip up your hand and one of our ushers will get one to you. Um, we want you to have God's Word open in your lap. Um, I'm just going to confess right now, I have nothing to say. I have no great wisdom. Uh, if you came to hear a wise man, uh, I'm not him. Um, so this is all I have. And, and I want us to walk out of here saying, this is what God's Word says, not this is what John thinks. Um, so that's my goal. Um, we keep our eyes uh, on God's Word together. So Verse 17 picks up basically the same place where we started off last week. 
The ten plagues have left Egypt in economic and religious ruin. Um, they have nothing left. Pharaoh and the people of Israel had begged, uh, the people of Egypt had begged Israel to leave, get, get out of here. Their firstborn children of man and beast have been killed. The morning after the Passover dinner, the Israelites had gathered in the city of, of Ramses and, and, and walked all day to the city of Succoth, not yet out of Egypt, but they're on the cusp, they're on the way out. And in Succoth, Moses explained to them the feast of unleavened bread and the, the requirement that they either sacrifice or redeem the firstborn uh, of man and beast. And, and through that, God is telling them, cleanse out the sin from your life, leave behind that, that old leaven of Egypt and, and commit everything to me. Everything you have is, is mine. I, I redeemed you. I have purchased you. You belong to me. Now they've spent the night in Succoth and they're back on their feet again, ready to finally leave Egypt. And, and yet God is not done with this display of his glory, this great rescue plan. And, and that's the point of all of this. And we can't lose sight of that. God could easily have just killed the Egyptians in their sleep. Set them free. He could have, he could have blinded them and, and made them death for three days and, and just let the Israelites march out unnoticed. He, he could have done it many other, much more simpler ways. And yet, the Lord has designed this massive display, even hardened the heart of Pharaoh to oppose him so that he can display his glory, so that he can make this proclamation, this is who I am, and, and this is how I rescue my people. So, as we look at these first few verses, um, start at Exodus 13, 17 and, and down to 14, verse 4. Um, I think these first verses scream out to us, trust him. He's the Lord who leads. He's the Lord who leads. I'm going to take this in, in two portions. Um, looking first at the, how the Lord leads him in 13, um, verse 17 to, to 22. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, Let the, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you. And you will carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. And the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. The Lord didn't take them the way they expected. They've, they've been set free, and, and he didn't take them by the way of the Philistines, although that was near. Let's throw a map up and, and show you what I'm talking about. Um, that's our world, and that's Egypt. You know that, but it's important to be reminded again, at least I find it, we're not talking about mythical storyland Egypt. We're talking about this Egypt, real-life Egypt. And uh, that's where the Israelites were up in Goshen on the northeast side of the, the delta. You can see what they mean by the wilderness. Um, the Nile River runs through in the delta and there's this lush green land and everything else is barren. It's dead. Um, and so 
The Israelites lived in, in Goshen, and the promised land is up here in Canaan. It's further to the north and the east, and there's a, a highway that runs through there. It was a regular trade route running up uh, through Philistia and into Canaan. So that's the QE2. That's where we're going. If you're going from Olds to Calgary, that's, that's the road you take. Everybody knows it. The Lord didn't take them that way. Um, that trade route would have been heavily fortified by the Egyptians, uh, and then there are the Philistines right there to deal with. They would have faced war almost immediately, and the Lord knew that this is, they're not up for this. They can't handle that, uh, and obviously he has a very different plan in mind. And so caring for them, he leads them gently into the wilderness toward the Red Sea. They took with them the bones of Joseph. Uh, and it's just this cool nod to the faith of Joseph and the faithfulness of God. And they moved from Succoth to Etham. Uh, we have no idea where either of those cities are. Uh, if you pick up a map and go, oh, here they are, I found them, um, those are guesses. We, we don't have historical data. Um, and, and so um, we're guessing. But how cool is this? The Lord went before them in a pillar of cloud by, night, or by day and, and by night in a pillar of fire. The Lord himself, God, the creator God is right there. They could look up and say, hey, how do we follow the Lord? There he is. Let's go. He's right there. So these first verses, we just see the, the gentleness of God, the patience of God as he's leading them. He's not giving them more than they can handle. He's comforting them with his presence. And then chapter 14, it takes a bit of a different turn. Let me read these first verses of chapter 14. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahiroth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea, for Pharaoh will say that the people of Israel, of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get the glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So we have three more cities here that we don't know where they are. We don't have any historical reference point. Um, but what we do know is the Lord's purpose. He tells us exactly what he's doing, why he's bringing them this way. He's taunting Pharaoh. He's like that cruel big brother with the, the toy saying, do you want it? Nope. And it's just into reaching out again. Come and get it, Pharaoh. Here they are. He's led them into a bad spot that, that, that Pharaoh will say they're trapped. They're shut in. They're mine. And, and he's doing it that he might display his glory in, in utterly destroying Pharaoh. Consider how the Israelites felt about this, though. Could have taken the QE2. Could have headed straight for the promised land. We're, we're getting out of Egypt. What, what, what we, now we're in sundry. What are we doing over here? Why, why are we in the wilderness, Lord? I, I thought you were taking us to the promised land. And worse, they're, they're trapped. The wilderness and the sea. Where do you go with two and a half million people? The Lord is leading them all the while. It's hard sometimes trying to figure out, God, why did you bring us this way? Why have you put us here? 
Why am I facing the things that I'm facing? And, and we have to be careful and, and, and fair to the context here. We, we might be tempted to take these verses and say, um, you know, I wanted to be an engineer, but school didn't work out, and God kind of took me the long way around. Or, you know, I had hoped to be married at this point, but, you know, it hasn't gone the way I wanted. God has put me for a season in the wilderness. And, and, and it's not wrong to say that God leads in those situations. That's just not what these verses are about. Pharaoh and Egypt are clearly, deliberately, consistently used as a picture of sin, the power of sin and death that rules over us. The Lord led the Israelites to a place where they would be able, more than that, they would be unable to ignore or deny the overwhelming, absolutely dominating force of Egypt. God in His grace takes us to places where we are faced to see the ugliness of sin, where we can't deny it anymore, both the sin in us and the sin around us. We're forced to just hit rock bottom. He's still the God who leads gently. I think he spares us from far more than we realize. Um, He restrains our sin from being all that it could be. He he protects us from those things that that would break us. And yet it is often his plan to to crush us, to bring us to that place. Because he has this glorious plan to have victory over sin, to to destroy it um, both in us and in eternity. And so he often leads us to places like Balzaphon, trapped, confronted by the ungodliness and 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 the power of sin in our own lives. And we see the same thing on the world stage. Why is it that evil is so prevalent in our world? Why is it that that God doesn't intervene? Why Why hasn't he crushed this and shut it down? Why do we see the news full of of murder and and rape and and human trafficking and school shootings? Why, Why is ISIS still a thing? Why do we need to have a pregnancy care center? He has a plan. It's not simply to rescue his people out from sin quietly and discreetly, but to make this epic display of his glory in so doing. To show his his power and his might and his majesty. I I can't remember for the life of me who said this first. I'm I'm inclined to think it was Hudson Taylor, but I I could be totally off on that. Um, He was asked, uh, whoever it was, if God is so powerful... Why does he allow evil to continue in this world? And his response was to ask in return, if a, if a king was invaded by his enemies while he was away, which is more impressive? If he, if he comes back right away and catches them off guard and, and chases them out? Or if he waits patiently? He lets them settle and establish themselves in the land. He lets them bring their friends in and to be fortified and build defenses and walls and organize themselves. And then he comes in power and obliterates his enemies. God is displaying his glory. It's hard to watch sin rule in this world. It's hard to see it destroying lives, doing damage in, in our own lives and our relationships. 
It's hard when we come to that place when we see the devastation in our own soul and, and have to admit the, the depth of sin in us. And we just cry out, how long, O oh Lord? What are you doing? Why have you let this happen? Why have you not broken in on this and stopped all this madness, God? Trust Him. He's leading. He has a plan, a plan for our greatest good, a plan for the greatest display of His glory, and and those two go together. We see this plan continuing on through chapter 14. Uh, He doesn't abandon them. He doesn't lose control. Chapter 14, from verses 5 through 14, we see this call to trust Him. The Lord fights. The Lord fights. Picking up at chapter 14, verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done? That we have let Israel go from serving us. And so he made ready his chariot and he took his army with him. He took 600 chosen chariots and all of the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his armies, and overtook them and camped at the city of Pihaharoth in front of Belzephon. And when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to bring us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Amazing passage of scripture. Even after begging Israel to leave and and pushing them out, the Egyptians then realize um, we've just given away 600,000 able-bodied slaves and their families. We want them back. That was foolish. That was our livelihood. I don't want to do that work. Go get them. And look at the language used here. 600 chosen chariots. This is Pharaoh's elite squad. These are the Navy SEALs. They're going in. Um, And the chariot uh, is like the F-35 fighter jet of its day. It is the high-tech military equipment. This is top of the line. And it's not only his 600 chosen chariots, it's all the other chariots. Down in verse 9, we see Pharaoh's horses and chariots, his horsemen, his armies. You get the picture. He is holding nothing back. Um, This is way overkill to go out after a bunch of slave families wandering in the wilderness. But Pharaoh is doing everything he can to display his power and his might. Remember, this is a, a battle of glory between Pharaoh and Yahweh. And on a human level, it works. Even after these 10 miraculous plagues, Israel lifts their eyes and to their surprise, they see on the horizon Pharaoh and his army and dust coming up from the chariots as they race toward them. 
And once again, we see an underlying theme that has run throughout this, one that I think um, might surprise you. It's the faithlessness of Israel. Verse 8, they were leaving defiantly, self-confidently. Now they fear greatly, and they cry out to the Lord, not in a good way. We see here the beginning of the grumbling uh, that will come to define their time through the wilderness. They lose hope. Moses, is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you've brought us out here to die in the wilderness? Consider the irony. Egypt is obsessed with building massive graves. What have you done? Exact same words the Egyptians used in verse 5. What have we done? And letting them go, what have you done in bringing us out here? They sound more like Egyptians than Israelites. The climax of it all, leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians. And that word serve there, we've been tracking that word. That's the Hebrew word avad, which speaks of worship, that we might bow to them. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. There's a word for that. It's apostasy. They see Egypt as the better option. They're turning their backs on God. By these words, they're saying, we trust more in the goodness of Egypt than the goodness of Yahweh. Again, they cry out to God, but this is not the cry of faith. They're screaming out, God, where are you? What have you done? Why have you brought us here? What a mess you've created, God. How could you let evil and darkness surround us again? Have you ever been there? Overwhelmed by the power of sin and darkness in this world? The power of sin and darkness in your own heart? You just cry out, God, why? What a, what a mess. Why are we here? What are you doing, God? How is this not unforgivable? At this point, we we just have to acknowledge, again, Israel does not deserve saving. They haven't earned this. I don't think anyone would have blamed God to say, write them off. Walk away, God. They don't care about you. They don't honor you. You have shown your power ten times over in these plagues, and they still say it would be better for us to serve Egypt than Yahweh. Just strike them down, God. End it. That's not the last time. It's a good reminder for us, I think. The Lord doesn't save good people. The Lord doesn't come to rescue the strong, to gather the deserving, the able, those who are clean and tidy and respectable. He doesn't rescue the the confident and the faithful. What glory would there be in that? And frankly, who would there be to save? Deuteronomy 7, I love this, chapter uh, chapter 7, verse 6. Moses says to the people of Israel, reminding them of this day, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. Now listen to this. It was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. You were the fewest of all the people, but it is because the Lord loves you. 
and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and has redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The Lord. For no other conceivable purpose than his divine grace chose Israel, picked them. He set his love on them specifically and irrevocably. Not because they trusted him. Not because they were some great, strong nation. Not even looking down the corridor of history and seeing that they would trust him. Solely because of his grace, he chose them. He said, you're mine, Abraham. I'm going to build a mighty nation through you. And and he did. And he overcame not only the strength of their enemies, but the weakness that was in them. He didn't save them because of their great faith. In saving them, he produced a faith in them. It's reminiscent of Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you've been saved. Verses 8 and 9, for By grace you've been saved through faith. And this was not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. Have you ever stopped and trembled at the weakness of your own faith? Have you ever wondered, is my trust in God strong enough to save me? Am I I doing this right? Am I beyond the pale? Am I too far gone? The answer is, stop looking at yourself. Look to the one who fights for you. Look to the God who saves. It's back to these precious words in in, in chapter 14, verse 13. Fear not. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians that you see here today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. The Lord will do it. He will fight. Romans 9, 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Praise him for that. The Lord is saying them again, I will fight for you. I will finish this battle. It's not yours, it's mine. And literally, this is their name, Israel, Israel. God fights. And then, Don't miss the rebuke here. You have only to be silent. Shut your mouths, Israel. Stop complaining. Stop grumbling. Stop doubting. I will fight for you. Do we trust him? Can you look out into the chaos of this world? Can you see the the sin in your own heart? Be honest enough to see that it's there. Trust the Lord that he will fight for us. That he will be victorious on your behalf. That he will overcome. That he has a plan through all of this. Trust him. He's the God who leads. Trust him. He's the God who fights. And then trust him. He's the God who saves. This brings us to the final scene of, of this uh, Exodus narrative, the crossing of the Red Sea. 
the final complete destruction of Pharaoh and Egypt and the, and the deliverance of Israel. Picking up at verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel, go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go after them, and I will get the glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And the angel of God who was going before the hosts of Israel moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and he threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily And the Egyptians said, let us see, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, upon their horsemen. And so Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course, and the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not Not one of them remained, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is it. Right here. The Lord says to Moses, enough talk. Go forward. Move out. Now, we've heard the story before. We know what God is about to do. They don't have any idea. Forward? What are you talking about, Moses? Forward where? Forward into the sea or forward into the hosts of Pharaoh's army? This is insanity. And the answer comes back with the more absurd option of the two, into the sea, of course. Moses is told to, to lift up his staff and to stretch out his hand. Phrases that we've heard throughout the plagues. This is reminding us that this is God's power coming down. Now there's endless debate uh, over exactly where the Israelites crossed. Where did this happen? Which sea was it? And we throw that map back up here. Um, 
You see the, the Gulf of Suez on the bottom left here, um, and, and the Mediterranean Sea, as you can imagine, there's a, a low-lying area that runs all the way through. That's the Suez Canal through there today. Um, but in that day, there were just all kinds of swamps and lakes all the way down. And so the question is, where did they cross? What exactly, which body of water was it? Um, Bitter Lakes is, is one common option. It's a smaller lake up just a little higher. You can see it on that map. Um, it's 10 kilometers across. It's a decent sized piece of water. Um, that's one option. There's a bit of a translation debate um, that's part of the issue. Some say that, that the, the literal reading should be Sea of Reeds, not Red Sea at all. Um, others point out the word reed uh, simply can mean end, like the reeds grow at the end of a lake. Uh, of course, the Red Sea proper, being salt water, has no reeds. And so if it's Sea of Reeds, then it wasn't the Red Sea as we understand it. Um, without getting into the nitty-gritty, um, I tend to think that it was the Red Sea that they crossed. Um, I think there's some, some good reasons for that. If you go to Numbers 33, you can read of the Israelites traveling for five days along the Red Sea. I don't think that's Bitter Lakes anymore. I think it's something bigger. Uh, I think they crossed at the top of the Gulf of Suez there. Um, one other thing that's maybe helpful noting, I, I've seen it consistently. Uh, every few years, there's a recycling of this amazing story that they've found pieces of chariots on the bottom of the sea, and so now they know exactly where they crossed. The problem is it has never come from any reliable source. Um, so you'll read that, and uh, I would encourage you just wait a couple years, and you'll see it again from you know, World News or in the magazine row at the grocery store. Um, we don't know. And, and the bottom line is, it, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that we're true to what is said here. We're true to the facts that we find in, in God's word. What does the Bible tell us? Well, wherever it was, uh, it was significant amount of water. Some people would say, well, uh, it's probably just a swamp and the Israelites found a, a pathway through. The miracle is the water spread, not that the Egyptians drowned. Um, and, and I think our children's books actually become helpful here for once. Um, there was a wall of water on their right and on their left. How cool is that? Like, that's amazing. I love the, the pictures where you see like the whale swimming past and the kid's like, what? I mean, it's amazing. Amazing. It's this massive, miraculous display. The parting of some great water showing the power of God, the display of His greatness as He rescues His people. Verse 19, the angel of God is there. If you remember from, from chapter 3, the burning bush, we have the, the angel of the Lord, um, and it's none other than the Lord Himself. And, and here we see that clearly. If you go back to 1321, uh, it's the Lord, it's Yahweh in the pillar of fire and the cloud. And here it's the angel of God. Um, two different phrases used to, to describe God himself. And uh, the angel of the Lord is this, is this, I don't know if physical is the right word, some visible, tangible representation of Yahweh. And, and I dare say as we look back in history, we could say this is most likely the second person of the Trinity. This is Jesus before he was Jesus. This is Jesus before he was born uh, as a human. So the Lord himself is moving with Israel. He puts himself between Israel and Pharaoh's army. And it says the Lord looked down on 
Pharaoh and his army. And, and it's just an interesting that the, the, the Hebrew commentators wrestle with this because that looked down always is looked down from heaven and yet the Lord is also in the cloud and, and we can go, I know what's going on there and they, they don't get it. Verse 20, we have the cloud and the darkness and it lights up the night without the two coming near one another all night. Uh, it's a little convoluted. It took me a bit to kind of figure out what is, what is going on here. Um, as I understand it, um, at the start of the verse, you have Egypt and then Israel, and, and then you have the cloud and the fire. And so I think we have um, Egypt being faced with the cloud and the darkness, and the fire is this holy nightlight for Israel as they travel by night. And of course, the last time Pharaoh saw himself in darkness with Israel in the light was the ninth plague. Um, the Lord is continuing to uh, show Pharaoh, um, this is all me and I am in control here. And then the action starts. Moses stretches out his hand. A strong east wind began to blow. Again, people would say, see, it's just a wind. It was some kind of just uh, natural anomaly. Okay, there's more than that because if it's just the wind blowing the water back, I think you'd have kids getting thrown into the water as well. God is parting these waves. And not only do the waters divide and mount up as walls on either side, but the ground miraculously dries out in front of them. They cross on dry ground. They walk through the sea. And then as the Lord intended, uh, the Egyptians come chasing in after them. All of Pharaoh's horses, all of his chariots, all of his horsemen, his whole army goes charging in headlong. And in the morning watch, so that's between 2 and 6 a.m., the Lord brought panic onto the Egyptians. The dry ground softens back into sea mud and the chariot wheels begin to clog up so that the chariots drove heavily. Um, we've been chasing this word through as well and this is a great little mockery of Pharaoh. Um, the word there is kavod. It's the same word for glory. We have this battle for glory and now God is looking down and saying, how are those glorious chariots working out for you, Pharaoh? They're, they're heavy in the mud. The Egyptians figure it out. We need to leave. The Lord is fighting against us and for Israel, but it's too late. The Israelites have come safely out the other side, and Moses again stretches out his hand over the sea, and the waters collapse. Pharaoh and all of his mighty army is utterly destroyed. Their bodies wash up on the sea. It's finished with a crash. Verses 30 and 31 sum it up this way. The Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And the word hand there is the Hebrew word yod. Um, could also be translated power. And so verse 31, when it says, Israel saw the great power yod of the Lord used against the Egyptians. It's this showdown. The power of Israel, or the power of Yahweh against the power of Egypt. And so the people of the Lord, the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Again, for a time, their rebellion continues. But here they're encouraged, they see, they trust. And so ends this epic showdown between the power of Pharaoh and the power of Yahweh. 
And if you remember, uh, throughout the plagues, there was this persistent creation symbolism and creation language being used as Yahweh is declaring, uh, you have all these many different gods. I am the God. I am the God of creation. I'm the one who put this all together. And so the, the plagues break down into these uh, gods saying, I have dominion over, over water and land and sky. And, and he's undoing creation around the Egyptians. Well, this here at the Red Sea goes right to the foundation of creation. You see, water, the sea in ancient times was, uh, was emblematic of chaos, disorder. Um, they feared the sea. And, and that's part of the, the significance of Noah's flood. It's the wrath of God. It's this, this dreadful body of water coming. And, and that's why, um, even though, so Hebrews 11 tells us clearly that God created the world out of nothing. But as you go to Genesis, it makes a much bigger deal of the sea, the water. Yes, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's creation out of nothing. But then the earth was without form and void. Darkness is over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the water. It's chaos. It's out of control. It's dreadful. It's terrifying. It's covering everything. And the Lord divides the water and he brings out dry ground and from dry ground he produces life. So much of that same language is used here again pointing back to that creation story. There's darkness. There's the water. And where in in Genesis God divided the water and brought forth life, here he's collapsing the water and bringing death on his enemies. The wrath of the creator God returning in chaos undoing his foes. Of course, that's only half the story. Yes, it's the wrath of God against Egypt. It's the the display of his glory over Pharaoh, the absolute destruction and desolation of God's enemies, but it's also the salvation of his chosen people. It's this great rescue. And again, here, as the waters are divided, the dry ground comes forth, it is New life. It's this picture of new creation. Creation kind of starting over. God's victory not over them, but for them, giving them new life. Israel is to be this new humanity, chosen by God, undoing the curse of sin as they walk in obedience to God in this restored relationship to God. And so over the next six weeks, we're going we're to be moving into chapters 15 to 18, we see God as the, as the giver of life, and he's going to just display that over and over again and the richness of it. Uh, so that's going to be our next um, series. We're going to spend um, six weeks there. And then chapters 25 to 31, we see the tabernacle. And again, the tabernacle is filled with this symbolism of the Garden of Eden. He's saying, come back. Come back to that relationship to God. Come back to that place where where you can be with your creator. There's there's a way home. And as rich and wonderful as all this imagery is, it's just a glimmer. It's just a hint of what God is preparing to do. It's pointing forward to the reality of how God would truly save his people, not from from physical Egypt, but from slavery to sin and death, and and that one greater than Moses is coming. That he will give a greater victory over a greater enemy, that there will be a greater presence of God and a greater promised land. It's Jesus. He's born 
and a time when all of the male children around him are being slaughtered, just like Moses was. His parents flee down into Egypt, and, and so Matthew says, so it was fulfilled out of Egypt I have called my son, just like God called Moses out of Egypt. We see hints of this as Jesus comes to earth, showing us what he's about to do as he first calms the sea, and then he walks on the sea. We get to Luke 9. I didn't put this one in my notes. Nine, uh, Luke 9, 29. And the Lord is on the mountain, and he's talking with Moses and Elijah. It says, And he was praying, and the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, and they spoke of his departure. The word departure there is the Greek word exodos. They spoke of his exodus to Moses, of all people. Hey, how'd that go when you did it, Moses? It's going to happen again. It's happening now. We're fulfilling what you were able to be a part of promising. And it comes to fulfillment. When Jesus descends into the sea of God's wrath, when darkness falls on the cross, he, as our leader, descends into death, bears that punishment for sin that we deserved. And then Luke 24. On the first day of the week at early dawn, it's, it's creation. It's new creation starting over again. The promises are being fulfilled. They go to the tomb and they take spices that they had prepared and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb and they went in and they didn't find him. Why? Because he's not there. He's risen just as he said. He entered into the sea of God's wrath, but death could not hold him down. They walked, he walked through and he came out the other side to new life, eternal life. And he, as our leader, as our head, now calls us to follow. The way has been opened. He calls us, trust the Lord. He leads, he fights, he saves. Follow him through death into new life, into this new and greater promised land, and an eternal promised land, a new heavens and a new earth. It's part of the picture of baptism going down into the water, coming out again. Saying with Paul from, from Romans 6, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, uh, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So you have passed through the waters of of death and sin into new life in Christ. And anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And the church, as the people of God gather together, we become the new tabernacle. We become the new presence of God, this display of this is what it looks like to live in restored relationship to God. Reconciliation between God and man as we await the completion of this great victory. 
As the history of Israel progressed, um, Egypt uh, as this symbol of, of sin and, and the opposition of this world against God and his people was replaced uh, by the nation of Babylon. Babylon became the new symbol of, of sin and opposition to God. Revelation 18.21 takes us to the end when Jesus returns. He comes back to finish what he's started and it says, Then a mighty angel took up a stone like that of a great millstone and he threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and found no more. All that opposes God, the wickedness of this world that rebels against him is done. It's cast into the sea. Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil that had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And then get this, Revelation 21, 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. There's no sea in heaven. We're done with that. We're done with that. There is no more death. There are no more enemies of God. There is no more wrath of God. He has set everything right. His victory is complete. Trust Him. He saves. He rescues fully and completely. And by the death of Jesus on the cross, He rescued His people out from under the power of sin that was in us, out from under the penalty of sin that hung over us. And one day in return of Jesus in great triumph, he will once for all rescue us from the pain and oppression of sin all around us. Every tear wiped away. Every wrong made right. Every pain undone. Trust him. Trust him. Trust him. We can look into the face of sin and darkness in our world and in our own hearts. In this confident hope. Who is the Lord? He's the Lord who leads. He's the Lord who fights. He's the Lord who saves. What a great God we have.